My recording your, set? What's your recording say on your QuickTime? Like, what, what's it at? What number? Or what time? Oh, uh, good question. Um... All I see is a giant stop button. I don't know how to. <laughs> I don't know how to check the time without without making okay. it stop. Okay. Oh, I did That's just fine. make it stop. <laughs> uh, all right. You good? Uh, hang on, hang on, hang on. I can do a local recording again. And I will just tell you. Okay. Check my options. Good. Recording starting now. Awesome. Ben Wilson, thank you for coming on the podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you today because I love your podcast and I love everything you're about. Thanks, Danny. It's my pleasure. It's, uh, yeah, I've loved following your stuff. And so it's cool to actually be on the show. Hell yeah. So how to take over the world is going to be a top 100 podcast by 2022. We did check. We did it. <laughs> what what was the inclination to start writing that? Why do you why do you write that over and over and over again? And how did that actually come to manifest to become a reality? So I saw um, Scott. Uh, what's his name? He's the Dilbert writer. Scott Adams. He uh, he talked about this. And he had like a very specific method for doing it. And I actually like didn't get that into the method, but I was just like, all right, this guy is saying this crazy thing works where if you write something down 20 times per day, at least that's what I took away from it. Uh, you write it down 20 times per day and it's going to come to fruition. So I was like, cost me nothing, virtually nothing. This is going to take me a couple minutes every day. So I was like, I'll just try it. So I started writing it down and I hadn't been doing it for a couple weeks when, um, when I, I'm trying to think what happened first. I think I was just listening to my first million and, uh, and Sam Parr is like, I've heard this amazing podcast called how to take over the world. And I was like, man, what are the chances? There's another podcast called how to take over the world. <laughs> and he's like the host, Ben Wilson. I was like, Oh, that's me. <laughs> and, uh, so then it started blowing up. I peaked at, I think 28 in the charts, 22. 22. 22. There you go. Peaked at 22 in the charts. And uh, it's been up and up ever since. It's so... It's crazy to me that... How long were you writing those that word or that sentence over and over and over before Sampar actually called you out? Like, what was the timeline of that? It was weeks. I think it was probably two or three weeks. Two and or three weeks? That's it. That's it. And, Are you um, kidding me? And just to give you like a sense, like before Sam discovered the podcast, I was getting less than 2000 downloads per episode. Like it wasn't, it wasn't anything like there were people who liked it. I knew it could be a hit, but it was nowhere. And then after he shouted you out, where did it go? Went to 22. Now we're doing about, um, 50,000 downloads per episode. Um, some less, some more. So yeah, it's grown a lot. How how does it feel to know that there are 2.5 stadiums of Madison Square Garden listening to you 
every time you put it on an episode. <laughs> that that is a I, that's funny because that's exactly how I think about it. I look at those numbers and I'm like, oh man, like as many people come to see me as like a Steph Curry game, you know, like I know it's not the same obviously because because the demand is different, but. Um, yeah, it's humbling. Uh, I try not to get too nervous when I think about it that way. Cause it's, it's wild to think about it in, in that way. And then uh, what part along that journey did you become friends with Mr. Beast? Um, so Jimmy, uh, that was, um, probably six or seven months later, um, less than a year, more than six months, I think. Um, and he just reached out via DM and what was totally funny is I looked down at my phone really quick and I saw, uh, Mr. Beast wants to send you a DM. And I just thought like, okay, classic, this is going to be like Mr. Beast underscore it's some spam, right? This is, I get like five messages a week from fake Sampar accounts, even though I actually know Sam. Um, so I'm sure this is a fake message. So I just put down my phone. Um, and it was like 10, 15 minutes later. I was like, you know, maybe I should just look at that DM to see, uh, to, to see what's going on. And that's when I realized that it was really, it was really Jimmy. And, uh, so I said, I, I messaged him back. I was like, Oh, Hey. And he's like, I like your podcast. I just want to chat. And I said, yeah, whenever you want. And he said, how about right now? I was like, all right, here we go. <laughs> and so we were talking like 30 minutes later. You cut off there. You were talking, and then what happened? Uh, he he said um, he he said uh, yeah. Like I said, let's chat soon. Or he said, "Do you want to chat soon?" I said, "Yeah, whenever you want." He said, "Let's talk right now." And so, thirty minutes later, we were on the on the phone having conversation. What was that phone call like? Uh, it was interesting. He's just like an extremely curious person, right? So he was just like mining my brain. It's really interesting there's this phenomenon when you hang out with really smart people, when you hang out with fake smart people, you're like, Oh, they're smart. Or at least they think they're smart. When you hang out with really smart people, you think I'm smart because they actually just figured out a way in a very short amount of time to mine everything that you know, right? That's, that's how they're smart. They are able to identify people and, and get all the knowledge out of them. So that's what it's like talking to Jimmy is you're like, Oh, I'm super smart. Wait, did I just tell him like everything I know? <laughs> uh, he's, he's really good at that. What? Okay. So of all the people you've studied, who is Mr. Beast most similar to? Oh, Walt Disney. It's not even close. Like they're, they're eerily similar. Walt Disney and, and Jimmy. In what ways? Um, in, uh, in the obsession, uh, they're similar in their sort of, uh, weirdness in their showmanship. Um, like even, um, weird little like biographical details. I actually don't want to go into cause like Jimmy shared some personal stuff with me, but like there's weird little biographical details that about their family life and stuff like that, that matches up between them. Um, uh, yeah, I would say they're very, very similar. And then you've also worked closely with Sam and Sean over the past how long has it been since you guys have started working together and you've been producing my first, I think, I think it's been a, about a year and a half now. Wow. So it's been a year and a half. How did you become the, my first million producer? Um, it was really just Sam kind of wanting to 
to do me a solid and uh, and bring me in the orbit after he found how to take over the world. He's a big fan. He likes the show. And so he said, "Do you want to come come work for us?" And so uh, we worked out a we worked out a little deal. It's awesome. Um, now I'm curious, like of all the people you've studied, who are Sam and Sean most similar to? Uh, that's a good question. Um, and they're very different, right? So it's gonna be very different answers for, for each of them. Um, Sampar, who is Sampar similar to? Um, I would say, um, I would say Sam, I'm going to give, uh, Alexander the Great rating, um, in that here's the thing they had in common both very persuasive both very good charmers um very good people persons but when you dip below the surface both of them had a chip on their shoulder right and that was what kind of drove them uh to be as hard working as they are and sam definitely has that right so he um he has this like great warm personality he's like one of the warmest people i know but he also has this intensity, right? And um, that was very similar to, to Alexander, who um, who was very personable, could could really persuade and charm people to do what he wanted them to do. Um, but also had this like, if you got on his wrong side, if you disappointed him, if and if it really mattered, then he could be very intense. And, um, and you know, in the case of Alexander, could be vindictive and cruel. Um, but it all kind of worked towards his purpose. For Sean, who is Sean like? Sean, um, <laughs> Sean's a unique personality. Uh, I don't know that I've ever, um, that I've done a, an episode on anyone like Sean. Um, I mean, I guess one of the things that I would draw out uh, is he reminds me a little bit of a Bezos in this way. He's really good at switching frames and changing perspectives. So you're talking about the minutia of something and he's very good at like, all right, let's zoom out. Why does this matter? How does this fit into the bigger picture? Or you can be talking about the bigger picture and like, ah, oh, we kind of need to move in this direction. And you go, okay, pause. What does that actually mean? Like, what, what do we actually need to do to achieve that? So his ability to switch frames is something that's also true of of Bezos, who I think does that really well. You just go read his uh, his letters, right? His shareholder letters. Like he's really good at grand strategy, right? Like thinking about what is retail going to look like in twenty years, uh, geopolitics, technology. Like how is the world changing? But then. What does that actually mean for how we operate? What does that mean for the website? How does the website need to look different, right? How does the packaging need to look different? His ability to frame switches is, is really incredible. So a lot of people might understand what it's like to hang out with Sam and Sean because you've done it because they listen to the episode and they listen to my first million time and time and time again, but you've actually interacted with them on a day-to-day -day basis. They're filming an episode. You're in on that episode. You can ask them questions. You can review the episode. What has that one-on-one -on -one guide and mentorship been like for the last year and a half? Well, it's awesome. Um, they're successful for a reason. And it's cool because 
they're a little bit of fire and ice, as I just kind of pointed out. They have very different approaches, right? So it's cool to be able to uh, learn from from each of them. Um, so on a day to day basis, what's it like working with them? Um, you know, with Sam, it is um, like this um, aggression in pushing things forward. If that makes sense, uh, aggression gets like a a bad rap in these days, right? Uh, like if, you, if someone's aggressive, they think, uh, that's bad, but, um, I don't think it's a bad thing at all that, um, Sam, um, like doesn't take things for granted that they need to main to continue to be the way that they are. Right. Um, if you tell him like, if he's like, Hey, how come we can't get video podcasts on Spotify? And you're like, well, they said they're not rolling out till Q1, the ability for everyone to do video podcasts. He's like, well, I saw someone else doing video podcasts. So that means there is a way, right? <laughs> so, so go figure it out. Right. Um, and he's always pushing kind of like what's possible. Um, and then Sean is the thing. One of another thing he's really good at is always focused on entertaining. So like we're doing an interview right now. The easiest thing in the world is for you to ask a question and for me to answer it. Right. You answer the question. That's what most people do, right? He's always answering the question, but he's got a little part of his brain set aside that's going, how is this the best content possible? How is this entertaining? How am I making someone laugh? How am I making them say, wow, or what the F? Or like, um, how am I sparking a reaction? So not only is he able to answer the question, talk about the topic, but he's you can tell he's always thinking about how to turn it into the best content at the same time. And that is like such a hard skill to, to master. And it's, uh, he, he is absolutely a master at it. How have you used that guidance and mentorship into how to take over the world? I think, you know, there's this temptation to think I'm adding value by putting information out there, right? There's just so much information. You've got to do both. You've got to be an informer and an entertainer, right? And so that's something that I have picked up on from that is, um, I was telling these amazing biographies and I think maybe initially I defaulted towards, well, just tell them the story and they'll learn from it. And there's some truth to that. I got the show to a certain place. Um, but now I try to take into account that yes, I'm informing them and there's some value in that, but I've also got to be entertaining them from one second to the next. I've always got to keep the listener hooked. And, uh, and so that's what I'm trying to do. What is the research process look like for, a random episode. How do you go about, what do you start with? What do you do? What books do you read? What podcasts do you listen to? How do you go about doing it? What's the total time? So break that down. Lot, it's a lot of time. It's too much time. I need to do better at, at speeding it up. But so my first version, people talk about like bad first drafts, right? People's first drafts, even when they make first bad first drafts are way too good. Okay. So my first draft is I'll go, uh, I'll take a random. Let's do someone I haven't done. Uh, I'll take, um, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. So I go in my head and I go, all right, what do I know about Martin Luther King Jr.? Uh, civil rights movement, uh, was thrown in jail, civil disobedience, great speaker, I have a dream. And so then I'll read his Wikipedia and I'll go, okay, this is what I think the episode is going to be about based on what I already know and what I literally just read on Wikipedia. It's all so start writing a first draft. And that can only get so long because I don't have all the information and it's just a summary of Wikipedia, but I'll write a like four or five page 
first draft just off of what I know in Wikipedia. So it's like horrible. Some of it's wrong. Um, and, but it helps me to put together hypotheses so that in my head, as I'm doing the actual research, I'm thinking, okay, what about this? Like, what about his assassination? Like, was that actually the FBI or the CIA? Like, was that the government or was that like a random racist? Like, that seems really interesting. Now I, I know to key in on that. Right. Or, um, um, you know, I have a dream. That was an amazing speech. How did he write that? Um, um, or like I could be reading the Wikipedia and realize like, oh, I, I never knew anything about, you know, um, this other part of his life. Right. Um, oh, he was, a, he was, uh, a communist towards the end of his life. Like, uh, is that true? What does that mean for, uh, what we think about him? Um, so like it gives me some hypotheses and some things to question and some things to like investigate as I read. So then I read a biography as I read that biography, I just turn on a voice, voice recorder and I just say out loud, if I read a good quote, um, and I'm like, Oh, I want to use that in the episode. I just say it out loud. And if I have thoughts as I'm reading, I say them out loud. Uh, and then I have that transcribed through software automatically so that I have a full transcription of my notes and then I take my really bad first draft and then I take my notes that I got, um, and I update it and I start fleshing it out and turning it into, uh, a full story. Right. But I don't, you know, I don't stop at one biography because I don't want to feel like I am just reinterpreting someone else's interpretation of this person. So I always try and get a second biography. Uh, if I can, I like one of them to be a firsthand source, either an autobiography or someone who actually knew them. And then I also will do a little bit of research if I need to on kind of the time, the place, the conditions surrounding them. So that I feel like I, I really understand that world. And so each with each new book I'm reading, I'm just fleshing it out more, adding in more, adding uh, more information. And so I, by the end, I've actually added all this stuff. So the last step is I need to cut down and get it to a, a sizable portion that uh, actually flows and, uh, doesn't have too much extraneous information. So I'm reading and I'm adding and I'm adding, and then I cut down at the very end. And you have a script, right? For each episode, like how does, I, how does I, that I, become a script? Uh, so, so, um, yeah, as you mentioned, I read, uh, my episodes, I should say, I don't exactly read them, right. But I have a script that I could read. Uh, and having that feels like a safety net to me so that I can just get on there and I can start talking, going off on tangents. And at the end, I don't get stuck, right? I know I can go back and start reading again. So yeah, uh, the editing process of turning notes into script is like, is definitely the hardest part of, of writing. Um, how, how do you best and most effectively do that? Um, how do I put this? It's, um, how do I most effectively do it by just doing it? Like there is no, I've tried to figure out like an efficient and like fun way to do it. And actually that part of the process always sucks. Like I love researching, but then taking those notes and turning it into like narrative script is just, it's just work. And so it's just like, uh, how do you dig a hole, man? Like, uh, there's no great answer. You pick up your shovel, you start digging. <laughs> That's it. Uh, I haven't found the backhoe. I haven't found the hack. Like, that part of the writing process is just grinding. You just grind. Interesting. And then what to you is the most fun part of it? The whole thing. It's the research. The, like research. the most fun part. Like that's, I love biography, man. I love, like there's this feeling I get when I read the biography of someone, um, who, uh, who's done amazing things. 
the, the Greeks actually had a word for it. They called it zealous, which is the, where we get the word zealous uh, or zeal. Um, and they had a specific word to describe the feeling that you get when you read about someone that you admire and want to be like. And um, it actually, I was just learning about this. It comes, the root of the word comes from the Greek word for boil, right? So it's this boiling feeling inside you. And Aristotle described it as a pain. And it mm. is, it's this weird combination of like, you're excited. You know, when I read about Napoleon, I'm like, oh, I feel this excitement, right? It's, it's amazing. Think of what he accomplished. I get juice. Now I want to accomplish a lot, but it's also this pain of like, oh, look what he accomplished. And I have not accomplished anything, right? And so it's this mixture of excitement and anxiety over not having done more. Um, and I, I, I'm obsessed. I like, I love it when I read biography and I get that feeling. So that's the most fun part for me is doing the research, actually reading biography and finding out more about their lives. Yeah. Because it's insane, right? Like the, all the examples that you point out are, are ways in which people have lived effectively in the past. Have you ever considered or thought about doing like a, an anti uh, how to take over the world. Like you should definitely not do these things if you want to take over the world. Well, I mean, I've done, um, an episode on Vladimir Putin and uh, I'm That's working right. on an episode about Joseph Stalin and I'll probably do Hitler after Stalin. So like, um, there is an element of like, well, you still should emulate them in terms of how they took power, right? Like not what they did with it, but, mm. um, but there is also an element of like, yeah. Um, and also, I think in every story, you know, Napoleon died in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean on an island that was completely barren. He was completely out of power. Um, and Julius Caesar was assassinated. Uh, you know, like a lot of these people did not have good ends. So there are anti stories to learn from their stories as well. Uh, you mentioned Hitler and Stalin, and a lot of people in today's political and ideological climate are like, why would you even want to study people like that? That's a, a common narrative. I'm sure that might be pushed your way, especially if 50,000 people are listening. But what's your rebuttal to the statement of we shouldn't study Stalin, we shouldn't study Hitler. Those people have done awful, awful things. I think there's a, there's a risk when you tell everyone power corrupts. Okay. And that like seeking power is bad. Well, then only certain deviant personalities are going to seek and obtain power, if that makes sense, right? Uh, what I want is for good people to seek power, right? And so I think there's a danger if you have this giant blind spot where you say, all right, I'm not going to study the lives of bad people. I don't even want to know about Hitler and Stalin, right? Like, I don't even want to know about their lives. It's like, okay, well, then... You know, uh, people who are who are willing to study those lives are going to know something that you don't know. And so that's what I would say is that even if you don't admire them, uh, that's kind of why I'm planning on doing Stalin and Hitler together. One extremely right wing figure, one extremely left wing figure of like, look, I'm not trying to I'm, I'm not saying like, here's fascism 101. Here's communism 101. Right. Like uh, I have a viewpoint on this. I want uh, I find either of these admirable. I don't. But. Like you can learn good lessons from bad people. I, you just can. And I don't think there's yeah. a problem with that. Absolutely. Well, one of the common, two of the common themes that you've noticed from how to take over the world and people who have successfully taken over the world is their eating habits and their energy. I think these are fascinating because 
the the most successful or the people who have taken over the world most effectively they haven't ate and they have had a lot of energy what what when you find that comparison what what strikes to mind and are there any others as well that you can point to and be like oh this is is something i keep seeing over and over again yeah i mean the eating thing is funny to me because to me the eating thing is definitely not about food right so i'll just ask you danny what was the last thing you did that you were so absorbed in that you like looked up and you were like holy smokes i'm hungry i didn't realize like i, I accidentally skipped a meal well it's 2 30 here today and i haven't ate today because i've been researching your story researching you feel that way about about podcasting right um yeah and like on a i was reading about thomas edison and that's when it struck me that like i'm reading about this guy it's interesting he had the same process he basically did his own version of how to take over the world he's reading about a guy michael faraday great inventor and he has this moment of zealous of, of reading about Michael Faraday and freaking out. And he goes, man, Faraday was such a great inventor, such a great scientist. I haven't invented anything compared to him. And he says, uh, after he read that biography, he decided I am going to hustle. Um, <laughs> is that is how he phrased it. It's funny. They use the same language back in the 1800s. I'm, I'm going to hustle. And that's when his career started, right? Uh, that's when he started inventing. And, but you read about that period of his life. He finishes that biography and he starts inventing he's working as a telegraph operator. That's how, that's his day job. Right. And he's inventing at night and his family's worried about him because he never showers. He smells bad. His clothes are shabby. He doesn't eat. Um, he, he's getting really gaunt. His, his skin is just hanging off his bones and it's cause he gets home and he just invents at his workbench. He tinkers and he's inventing until he passes out. And he wakes up and he tinkers some more until he has to go to work. And, and I just realized like, oh my gosh, you substitute meth or heroin for inventing. And it'd be very clear what this guy is. He's an addict, right? He was, he was addicted to inventing. And, um, I think that's why these people eat so little is because what makes them great is that they are addicted to, to what they do. Like you can see it in Napoleon, everyone else in the Napoleonic Wars is like very cautious about uh, where they want to fight and, and when they want to fight, very strategic. And his, he, he literally says, first I engage, then I figure out a plan. Okay. So he's always like marching to the enemy. I want to fight. I want to fight. This guy's addicted to battle. He, he knows he's so good at it. He knows he can beat the enemy. He wants to fight as many battles as possible because this is where he thrives. He's addicted to it. He loves it. And that's where the eating thing comes from is that like, you got to find that thing that you're addicted to the thing that you would skip a meal and not even realize it, uh, because you're so in it. That's what leads to greatness. Um, what other attributes have I, uh, have I picked up on? Uh, you mentioned energy. These are people of, of extremely high energy. I think those two things are related, right? The fact they're doing what they love and are addicted to gives them energy. Um, focus obviously is a big one. Uh, these are people who are very good at, cutting out the extraneous at not doing things, uh, that are not core, uh, to their mission. Uh, that's another one that I would draw out. Um, I would say the other thing too, is they're all artists. Mm. Um, they all succeed because they're able, there's no way that you can be such a good manager that you can manage your way to victory in a very complex, uh, 
in anything complex, right? So like Steve Jobs could not have sat down and like invented the iPhone by inventing the iPhone, right? Of being like, ah, oh, the screen's going to go here. No, no, no. What Steve Jobs could do is say, this is what we're trying. This is the vision of what we're trying to do and get everyone moving towards that vision. So he's an artist because he has to paint a picture of the future that he can get everyone moving towards independently. He can't oversee all of them all the time. They, they have to be able to uh, move independently towards that vision. And the only way to do that is to be a great artist, is to be able to paint a beautiful picture for people that is enticing, that makes them want to move in that direction and, um, and is clear so they know exactly what to do. Um, the same thing could be said of, of Edison, uh, of, of all the great conquerors. Um, so uh, that's another thing I would point out is that uh, they had very clear pictures of what success was, of, of, of how they wanted the world to be different. How have you personally become more like the people you've studied? And is there an example that pops to mind of you using something or an overarching lesson in your own personal life? Yeah. Um, yeah, there, there, uh, there are a bunch. Um, I think one of the ways, um, here, here's a good example. So before I started doing media stuff, uh, I worked in tech marketing, right? And, um, and so I, I get assigned this project and it's way under-resourced, right? And I try and do well with this, this project. It was an event technology company and I was trying to do our first, um, uh, it's a little difficult to explain, but I was, I was, I was doing our first subscription product, right? For what had been like a upfront price. So I was trying to figure out, all right, how do we do this product differently? It was way under-resourced and it was, um, and, but I was like, this is great though, because I'm going to do it cheap. Right. And, um, and even if it fails, it's not a big deal because, uh, at least like I'm not taking a lot of resources and, um, so no one can get too mad at me. Right. Uh, and like nothing really ever happened. Right. It was, it was too under-resourced. And, uh, so we kind of roll it out and, and, um, it doesn't really move. doesn't really get a lot of traction and it gets shelved. Okay. I'm reading this biography of Napoleon and he has a similar situation where he's supposed to be besieging this, uh, this city Toulon and he's just way under resourced and he takes the exact opposite approach, which is, um, I don't care how much it costs. I'm going to win. Okay. So he's writing back to Paris and he's like, you have not given me enough cannonballs. You haven't given me enough cannons. You haven't given me enough men. You haven't given me enough horses. Like this is completely inappropriate. He starts going around to local towns and being like, Hey, I don't know if you heard, but the French government says, uh, you have to give me your cannons. And they're like, what? And he's like, yep, they're mine now. And he leaves. Right. So he's like, I'm going to do anything to win. I'm going to take all the resources because you get no credit for failing cheaply. You get no credit for failing inexpensively. And that totally shifted my mindset of like, Oh, okay. Um, um, I need to make the noise to get the resources, right? So uh, when I come into my first million and they're like, I, I'm like, I want to do a contest, a clips contest, and we'll have all these people um, see who can get the most views on, on TikTok and we'll uh, give $10,000 to, to each of the winners. And they're like, oh, how about $5,000? I'm like, I will die before you lower this to $5,000. We're doing $10,000, <laughs> okay? Like that was the lesson I took away. Like. We're not going to fail at this for lack of resources and because it's a, it's a cheap amount of money that doesn't entice anyone. Like 
we're going to do real money. And uh, this is a hill I'm willing to die on. I'm not willing to fail cheaply. So that's, that's maybe a story of, of how I learned from that. You seem like s- such a reserved and calm person. It's like, how do you then, is, is, do you think that's an accurate assessment? Are you actually as reserved and calm as you appear? Uh, for the most part, yes. Um, there was this funny story. So we did this thing called Camp MFM. And uh, Sean Puri from My First Million put together this like basketball camp. And <laughs> I am a calm, reserved person. I'm also pretty good at basketball. And so we show up and Nick Huber was one of the guys who was there. And we're playing basketball. And in the first game of basketball, Sean is on my team. Nick comes down and Nick is a good basketball player and he makes a little move and he scores on me and we're sitting there and Sean goes, uh, I think Nick is the best basketball player here. Damn. He's good. And I got so mad. I was like, I don't, I can't use the language that I, uh, cause you know, maybe my mom will listen to this, but, uh, I was upset and I was like, Sean, no, he's not. And he said, Oh, and he was really taken back. He goes, who is, I go me. And, uh, I, uh, I proceeded to have a good game. I, uh, I think I, I showed everyone that I was in fact the best basketball player there and, Sh- and Sean changed his assessment. So I am someone who's calm. Um, but, uh, I've got a long fuse, but when that bomb goes off, I, um, I can show my, my emotion, my enthusiasm a little bit. Uh, this happened recently on, on my first million, actually, there is another show, uh, who's in our, our category. Uh, and, um, I felt a little disrespected by that, that show. And, uh, and so it just kind of kicked me into a new gear on the production for my first million. We're trying some new initiatives, doing some new stuff because, um, and I think that works for me. Most of the time I like to be the guy who slows things down is, is calm and, and keeps a level head. And then, uh, when I need to snap, when I think it really matters, I'm, I'm able to dig deep and, and find that, uh, that level. Well, what you didn't include in the story about Nick Huber was that you had said prior that you were going to take it easy on everyone because you didn't <laughs> want to appear as too much of an alpha. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, I was like the poorest person at Camp MFM, right? Everyone's a millionaire and a billionaire and I'm not. And, uh, and so I, uh, I was like, these are good relationships I can cultivate. All these people can help me. You know, I want to, I don't want to get too intense. You know, I don't want to embarrass anyone. So I'm just going to, I'm going to be calm. And, uh, as soon as Sean was like, I think Nick's the best person, uh, person here is like, I'm not calm anymore. <laughs> I lost my head. <laughs> well, I, and that, that makes me ask about who you think you are most related to of the people you've studied. Is it Brigham Young? Well, I mean, Brigham Young, I'm literally related to, right? Uh, so, so there's that, but, um, no, I, I think I see myself more as a Walt Disney type, right? Interesting. Uh, um, he was the person who, and he was more calm, except for when he he lost it. Right? Um, he was a perfectionist. He was an absolute perfectionist. But he wasn't the Steve Jobs type who was gonna berate you. Usually, that actually did happen. Uh, but but usually he was just like uh, his approach was like, can I see that a few different ways? Mm-hmm. You know, like oh, this is our drawing of um, of Sleepy from the Seven Dwarfs, and he's like. Uh, it's okay. Could you try a few different ways? You know, uh, and because um, he wanted it to be just right, and um, and so he was always going to insist on that, but he wasn't going to beat you over the head with it. Um, he was someone, and, and so I see myself uh, in that way. I have 
he had a very defined vision for the future mm. of, of how he thought animation would go and should go and what it should be like. Uh, I feel like I have a pretty clear vision for uh, media and podcasting and, um, and what should be created and what's the marketplace is missing. And uh, I'm pretty good at insisting that things get done right in order to meet that and match that. Well, what is the vision for how to take over the world over the next three years, let's say? Um, I really think I have struck a nerve with this biography thing. You know, it was like a revelation for me when I, I, I called it ambition porn. I was like, I think of this as ambition porn, right? I'm like reading about uh, Napoleon or Alexander the Great climbing his, his way to the top. And I feel like I'm there. I feel like I'm there with him. I feel like I'm, um, I'm having the same rise. It is like pornographic in that way. Uh, and so then when I uh, read that the Greeks had a word for this uh, called zealous, I was like, oh, great. I don't, I don't have to call it uh, ambition porn anymore. I can call it zeal, which is the word they, they used for it. Um, so I think, here's what I think. I think there's not enough genre in media right now. So if you go back and you look at some of the, you look at Edgar Rice Burroughs, you know who that is? He's the guy who wrote uh, Tarzan. He wrote John Carter of Mars. Okay. And so this is a guy who's a great genre writer. He's like, okay, I wrote Tarzan. People love Tarzan. It's a great story. It's an action. It's an adventure series. People love adventure. Uh, I don't need to complicate this. I'm going to pump out literally like 50 Tarzan books, right? Of, uh, of different stories. And I'm going to release them serially and I'm going to do it. Um, and I'm going to do it regularly. Um, people like are a little too artsy and cute these days with how they want to do stuff. Like, um, and that's what Marvel got right. They kind of took the Edgar Rice Burroughs. They're like, Hey, guess what? This works. We're going to pump them out, baby. You're <laughs> like, you guys like this? You're about to get a whole lot more of it. And uh, it's, the Hallmark Channel is similar. At a, at a certain point, they were like, oh, women really like these cutesy Christmas stories. Um, so guess what? We're not going to reinvent the wheel. We're just going to pump them out. I think the essentially how to take over the world, this like biography for ambitious people who want to learn from people who came before them and did amazing things and want to be inspired by that is way underserved. And so mm -hmm. I want to take that model and apply it to that. I want to be the Hallmark channel for, um, amazing biographical stories. Right. So, um, right now that's happening in podcasting and we're, I'm forming a network. I've got another podcast that's coming into the network and, um, we're going to add to that and, pump out more of these stories for, you know, famous artists throughout history, famous, uh, you know, you, famous women throughout history, famous, um, scientists, famous philosophers, you know, you take it in a lot of different ways, but we want to help people discover more of those stories. And right now we're only in audio, but we're going to be moving, um, into video, uh, coming probably early next year and, um, and go from there. Is that what pod ramp is all about? Pod ramp is, uh, no, no. Pod ramp is something that came from a, a fortunate circumstance that I was put in. I had a chance to help someone who had a great following on Instagram and was like, oh, I am having trouble monetizing this. I can't figure out how to make money. And I was like, well, I make a lot of money in, my, in podcasting. Have you thought of a podcast? And she said, no. So I helped her do that. It worked really well. And so I thought I should do this. So that's more of just a, 
um, opportunity in the marketplace that I saw, and I love launching new shows. That's always fun to me. Like I love creating and launching a new thing. So um, PodRamp is a service you can find at PodRamp.io to help influencers who already have a following who want to move into podcasting to help monetize their audience that way. Uh, we do that, and uh, and I think we do it quite well. What's the minimum threshold for somebody? Is it like if they have ten thousand followers on Twitter? Is it like a hundred thousand? Like what? What are you looking for exactly? Like what is a a pod ramp show? Um, it depends a lot on uh, the platform, right? So, okay. if you're on TikTok and you got a million followers, I would say for Twitter that's like two hundred thousand, um, mm. because Twitter followers tend to be more engaged. There tends to be like more of a uh, a relationship there, uh, more of them are going to come and, and check out your stuff. So it depends a lot on the platform, but just kind of like who we want to work with. Yeah. I mean, it's actually about half of what I just said. So on TikTok, if you got a half million or more, uh, we're interested. If on Twitter, you got a hundred thousand or more, uh, we're interested. Uh, Instagram is kind of the same as, as TikTok. Um, that's like a half million, uh, YouTube, is kind of in between those. Um, it's probably a little closer to TikTok. So if you got 200,000, 300,000 followers on YouTube, uh, we'd be interested in working with you. So that's, that's kind of the threshold we work with. That's cool. And what, what made you like, you're doing a lot of different things right now. Like one thing you got pod ramp, another you you're building how to take over the world. Another, you got how to take over the world network. Another, you got my first million producing. How how are you managing all these things? <laughs> uh, poorly. I also just had twins, so it's it's all hitting at once. God bless. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, how do I manage it? You know, it's what I said. Like, if you think you're going to manage your way to the top, then uh, it's it's not going to work. You have to be able to paint that picture and get people invested in it and get other people working on it. So, uh, you know, hire great people and show them the vision. That's how you mm. do it. Makes sense. What of those, I assume you enjoy how to take over the world the most. You enjoy creating that and building that the most. How do you make sure that that retains the most amount of time when you have three other things that, or maybe four other things with twins or five that require <laughs> your attention? Uh, I don't know. You got to ask someone else. That. I do a poor job with this. Um, I guess... Um, there are seasons of life, right? Um, there are seasons of life. And I, I think I try and, I try and remember that. Um, and so, you know, with how to take over the world specifically, how do I do it? Um, it's really just letting go. Mm. Like with pod ramp, it's much more of, Hey, this is something I should get out there. I should work at. It makes me money. Um, I like launching shows. I don't necessarily like selling, but I'll go out there and do the sales so that I have a chance to create these new shows that I, I, I really love doing. Um, with how to take over the world, it's like, uh, if I just let my daydream myself daydream for five minutes, eventually I'm like, uh, let's go pick up a biography and read for a little bit, you know? So it's just like letting go. Um, and, and that helps me find the time. Who's the current person you're obsessed with? Um, well, I'm kind of between, so it's really still Brigham Young. I'm obsessed with Brigham Young. Um, and, um, 
you know, that's, that's easy for me. He's my great, great, great grandpa. Um, I live in the state that he founded in a city that he founded. Um, and you know, I belong to a religion that he didn't found, but, um, was the leader of, um, and I just, I think, you know, have you read the network state biology? I haven't read it, but I've listened to him on 17 podcasts. Okay. So you kind of know the idea, right? But explain it to people who might not be familiar. The people, uh, for people who are not familiar, Bology uh, is this, he's a thinker who's had a couple exits, super smart guy, has been around Silicon Valley. And um, he has this idea that the future of states is not the old fashioned nation states that you're used to, uh, like France, Germany, but they're gonna have these network states, right? So if you think of like a community of uh, people online who are interested in the same stuff, they kind of form this organic community online. And he says, eventually they're gonna crowdsource property and they're gonna turn into these states that are recognized by places like the United States, recognized by places like Germany. Um, they're gonna provide services that you think of governments providing. Um, but it's not going to be this vast territorial thing. It's going to be more like a series of neighborhoods that are connected to each other by their shared belief and, uh, and a shared connection online. Um, I think that's just about the coolest thing in the world, right? I think it's, you know, I think about my ancestors and I'm jealous of them. They're the people who came to America and then kept moving across the frontier, right? At every single step of the way, you know, I, I was born in California, right? So every step of the way, my ancestors were like, ah, let's move west where there's a little more open space and, and start something new. And I just feel like with this idea of network states, that frontier has opened up again, right? This opportunity to say, wow, I'm going to create a new thing, a new place uh, with people again. And so that's why I started studying Brigham Young is like, oh, man, this is the last person I can think of who was like, all right. I'm going to start founding new cities and found a new civilization essentially in the middle of the desert. And, um, and so that's why I'm obsessed with Brigham Young is I think there is once again, now almost 200 years later, the opportunity to do what he did, which is to found a new people. Doesn't it feel like you're almost doing that with your podcast? I like to think so. Uh, but only in a sort of very nascent way. Right. Um, but it, that is the great thing about content in general is that you put your thoughts out into the world and it attracts people who like those thoughts, right? So now your audience isn't just a random collection of people who happen to find it on TV, especially in this day and age. It's a collection of people who think that what you think is also cool. So I love being connected to those people. I love that about it. One of the things you've thought recently that has gotten a lot of attention and attraction is your opinions or thoughts and takeaways on the new sperm metal analysis. <laughs> yeah. You, you, you tweeted, new sperm meta analysis, big takeaways. Sperm reduction is not localized. It's happening globally. There's been a 50% reduction average sperm count since 1973. And then following this trend, the average man will not be able to have children unassisted by 2050 and nobody's talking about it. Yeah. Crazy. It's crazy. So it's one of those things that's very troubling, right? Um, people ask, what's this caused by? Probably a combination of the rise of obesity. There are a number of factors, but the main one is, is probably uh, environmental toxins, mainly microplastics, right? So... Uh, we know that these things, uh, have, uh, have an effect on your hormones. 
lead to decreased testosterone, decreased sperm count. Um, the, the famous study uh, that people sometimes make fun of because Alex Jones picked up on it early was uh, these frogs who had atrazine poured into their water and the male frogs um, started um, growing female sexual organs. Um, basically, some of them turned in to female frogs. Um, others of them, many of them became homosexual, um, which is not a behavior that you typically find in, in those frogs. And, um, and then even those who did not do either of those things had a lot of trouble mating, showed disinterest, had much lower sperm count, uh, than, than their, um, than frogs who were not affected with atrazine, which is a weed killer. Um, and so it appears that this same process is happening to humans, that these environmental pollutants are driving down, uh, our testosterone, which is also decreased and our sperm count. Um, do I actually think that the human race is about to go extinct in 2050? Um, no, I, I wish I had phrased that a little better. Uh, that, that probably won't happen, but it's a very troubling trend that I think, uh, no one's doing anything about. And, um, and it's definitely going in the wrong direction. It has bad effects now and is going to have worse effects in the future. So yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I do think that's a huge, huge issue. Uh, people are really big on climate change. Um, and, I think that's okay, but I think sometimes it distracts from the fact that like there are other environmental issues as well that people should also be worrying about. Yeah, I mean, w one question on that. Do you know if sperm count and testosterone are linked? They're linked. The question is, uh, is it causal? And I don't think it's necessarily causal. I, like, I don't think that lowering your testosterone is what's leading to lower sperm count. Right. I think it's the, whatever is causing the decrease in testosterone is also leading to a decrease in sperm count. Yeah. So like someone hears that and I read that and I was like, well, what should I do about it? Right. Is the next question. And obviously you're not a doctor and you don't play one on podcasts, but like at being a smart person that you are like, what, what would the things be that your mind would go to of like, all right, I should take this action now. So, um, there's a, first of all, I'd say go listen to a podcast episode with on the Joe Rogan experience with Dr. Shanna Swan. Uh, she talks a lot about this. So I'll, I'm just gonna, basically going to regurgitate what she said. But um, this, so, so there are, I guess, two ways to think about it. One is removing the damaging things from your life. And then the other is what can I do that will increase uh, my testosterone and, there, and, um, and probably increase my sperm count as well. So on the removing harmful things, yeah, like you probably want to get rid of most things in, uh, in your wardrobe that are polyester because um, that is essentially plastic. And so that stuff tends to fray uh, and then you, you breathe it in. And that's one way that you get um, plastic in your system. Um, th this is interesting. The number one thing she said that is like low effort, easy to do, high benefit is never eat or drink from warmed up plastic. So if you've got water bottles have been sitting out in your garage. And then over the summer that heats up to 90 something degrees, that heating up of the plastic causes the plastic to leach into the water. And now you are drinking tons and tons of plastic when you drink out of that water bottle. So like you want one simple thing and easy thing to do, um, never drink, a, drink from or eat from heated up plastic, right? If you get a take home container and it's made out of styrofoam or another plastic, like just put it on a plate before you microwave it, uh, to, to eat from it. Um, 
and then do all the things that you know increase testosterone, right? So, um, you know, the sauna increases testosterone, going to the sauna, lifting heavy weights, getting enough sleep, eating well, like all those things help uh, keep your body in good shape. And the last thing I would say is like, yes, it's decreasing. Yes, it's a big problem, but like, don't allow yourself to feel helpless. Like go to the gym, work out, eat right, remove some of these plastics from your life, do the things and then stop worrying about it. Right. Until you have a chance to do something about it. Cause I think people can get paralyzed by it, but I don't know. You like you should control what you can control and, and don't worry about what you can't control. You mentioned the sauna as an important uh, aspect and that something that you realized helped you relieve some of your back pain and you wish you had understood that sooner that 25 minutes a day in the sauna. When was that realization for you and how impactful has the sauna been? It's, it's one of the most insane physical phenomena I've ever experienced in my entire life. I've had back pain for a long, long time. I've never been a big sauna aficionado. And, well, that's because uh, you're 6'6", six, six, the back pain. Yeah, yeah, I'm tall. So that's that's probably why I have back pain. And uh, But um, I, uh, I was on a, a work trip and I was at a Marriott in San Ramon, California. And, uh, I had a few minutes to kill and I went to go work out and I was working out for like 30 seconds and something just went in my back. I was like, Oh, which happens to me quite a bit. So I go to, sh to shower and change and, uh, and there's a sauna and I was like, well, I'll hop in the sauna really quick because this is the time that I had set aside to work out. So I'll sweat, like I'll do something. And, um, over the next 20 minutes, that pain in my back just melted away was just gone. I couldn't believe it. And that works basically regularly for me. I mean, if I really do something to mess up my back, it won't get it all the way. Um, but I can basically get my back pain to go away by going to the sauna. So a lot of people, you know, it's pretty popular now in the circles that we run in. Joe Rogan is talking about the sauna. Um, uh, Huberman is talking about the beneficial effects of, of, of going in a sauna. Um, but I, that's not something I heard a ton about was, was helping with your back pain but it has done that for me. You've said before that how to take over the world is really just a way to help people improve their lives through the vehicle of famous historical figures. What other ways can somebody go about improving their life that might not be obvious on the surface? So I'll say this, number one, I'm a huge believer. Yes. I'm a huge believer in biography as a way of improving your life. Uh, is funny. This guy, Laszlo Polgar, he, uh, w was an expert in genius education. So he raised all three of his daughters to be geniuses. They were the greatest women's chess champions of all time. All three of them, three for three, amazing feat. And he wanted to figure out how to be great and how to raise someone to be great. So he read 900 biographies, over 900 biographies of oh great people God. throughout history. So if you think like, ah, I've gotten enough out of biography, out of reading biographies, I'm going to go on to something else. I'm like, yeah, you know, there's there's probably more that you can get from that well. You know, like <laughs> there are probably a, a few more biographies that you can learn from. Um, but other things that you can do um, to improve your life, like I think a lot of it comes down to biology. Like there are a lot of problems that people try and think their way out of that if like you'd be better off going for a 30 minute walk, then you would be meeting with a psychologist. If that makes sense. Mm. Like you actually, what you need to change is your physical space, your biology. 
uh, what, what's actually happening with your body. Uh, sometimes you can't just fix it all up here. Um, and the same thing, like there's so many people who are uh, overweight and obese who are trying to solve their depression issues in other ways. And it's like, okay, I know it doesn't all boil down to being overweight, but like, man, if you worked on that, I guarantee you it would help, right? So um, I, I often think like that even is true of relationship issues, of, um, of just things that you think would be totally unrelated to your body. Um, fix your body and a lot of these other issues fix themselves. You mentioned before you've, you're having just recently had twins. And I'm curious what are the most important lesson or lessons you'd like them to learn as they go about their life? By the way, linking those two things, um, there are so many times when my daughter, so I also have a two-year-old, that she'll be like having a tantrum, she'll be melting down, and I'm like, Claire, okay, well, let's talk through this. Like, you want candy, but you can't have candy, okay? Like, um, what if we have candy after? Can we have candy after dinner? No, candy now. Like, and I'm just trying to reason with her, and I'm trying to like solve the solution. And then what I'll do is I'll just pick her up, and I'll just take her outside. And then the fresh air hits her, and the sunlight hits her, and she just calms down. And, um, and that, that to me is another testament of, of like, sometimes you can only solve the problems by, by solving the biology. Um, it makes you think about like how we're operating with that two-year-old brain sometimes right. just in our own life. Right. I can't tell you how many times that like something comes up and someone's mad at me on, uh, for, for a project that I'm working on. They're like, this isn't going well and I'm trying to solve it. And I'm trying to solve it. And I just... I start ruminating on it and I'm in this bad space. And I can't think of a solution and it just seems like there is no solution. And then I get outside and I go for a walk and all of a sudden the solution is very clear. Right. And that clarity comes. Um, so, so, um, there's that, like that clarity that comes from the outside world and from, from changing your, uh, your physical space. Um, what do I, what, what are the things that I want them to learn? Honestly, I think life lessons are like impossible to impart. <laughs> like you got to learn them yourself. So what I want them to learn are like actual skills. Um, I think you could spend a hundred hours. I could spend a hundred hours with my daughter reading inspirational books, reading mindset books, leading, reading lifestyle books, or I could spend a hundred hours with her teaching her to play the piano because I know how to play the piano. Right. And I honestly, not only at the end of teaching her the piano, will she know how to play the piano, which is a great skill and she can use for the rest of her life. But I also think she's just going to know more about how to navigate life because now she knows how to learn a thing. She knows how to learn a skill and she can use that and apply it in, in other parts of her life. So I honestly am more focused on teaching them concrete skills and I think that's the way to teach them the things that they need to know about life. I love that. Uh, going like, it's funny that you give that advice given that you spend so much time reading books yourself. Right. Um, I'm curious, you know, I recently, I read about Tyler Cowen talking about how reading, if you read about going to Asia, you read about all everything in Asia versus experiencing Asia yourself is like 
two different, completely different scenarios. Right. How much of that do you think about when you're reading these books and biographies is like, it's, it's pointing a finger to what it must have been like to live with Napoleon or Alexander the Great. But do you ever stop to consider the amount of context that is lost by the fact that we're actually not there? Yeah, all the time. And the How do you reconcile you, with that? Well, and the older you get, the bigger of a problem it becomes, right? So Walt Disney, like I can understand his world. He lived in America, and it was less than 150 years ago. Um, like Alexander the Great, <laughs> like half the things you read, you're like, this may or may not be true, right? So it's so <laughs> it's so hard to form a picture um, in in his head. But I will say this: like the stories that we get are reflected through the lives of other people throughout time. So the stories that we get about Alexander the Great, we get because there was a biographer at the time who wrote some of this stuff down. And then Plutarch comes along 400 years later and he reads what they wrote and he writes his own biography. And then someone else reads Plutarch. And, um, but at each stage, you know, Plutarch is writing for his times and what he thinks is relevant. So at each stage, like, yeah, maybe it's not the pure unadulterated truth about Alexander the Great, but this is someone who, um, who also had important experiences and lived a vital life and, and, a, and a good life. And uh, his thoughts on Alexander the Great um, are also important, even if, they're, if he's not right in every single detail. Um, so I try just not to worry too much about the fact that some of it is lost to history and I'm, I'm missing some of the context. Uh, by the way, some people like get mad at me for not telling more diverse stories. This is one of the reasons I don't do that is like people from India will be like, Hey, why don't we tell one of the stories of one of the Indian emperors? And I'm like, cause I have no context. Like I can't just read one biography. I don't know what came before him. I don't know what came after him. Like, I feel like when I go to India, I'm going to have to do India, right? Like I'm going to have to read all those stories and get immersed in it and figure it out. Another point of yours though, is that's one of the reasons that I have this thing pod ramp that I'm also doing, which is, um, all of these people loved biography and loved reading and learning from biographies. Right. Um, like I said, Julius Caesar read about Alexander the great and Edison read about Michael Faraday. Right. But that isn't just what they did. And you feel a little bit of like a fraud and a loser at a certain point. If you're like, all I do is study these people. I was like, no, I want to actually be out in the world doing something as well, which is why I wanted another business. Even though my business is kind of related, I felt for myself, like if my business was just talking about these people, um, that that wasn't enough. I needed a place to practice uh, as well. Uh, and, and to actually be out and doing. Yeah, that, that's an interesting idea. I've, uh, I've thought about that as well, but how I reconcile it with myself is this is just the first step to the next thing, right? And it's like Oprah couldn't have created the Oprah Winfrey network before Oprah Winfrey herself was successful. Well, yes, true. But uh, don't you also have a clip agency, Cliff's agency? Yeah, I mean... I want to like get away from that in a way because I'm like, I like doing this so much and I want this to be the thing. Yeah. Um, I get what you're saying with it being, um, the first step. Like mm -hmm. that's absolutely true. Um, and I think there is some, some truth to that and some veracity to that. 
but um, I don't know. I like having another another sandbox to play in it as well. For sure, and I'm sure some parts of that will inform what you're doing today in for the podcast, and they'll play into each other in a nice way. Right, yeah, absolutely. I like to end these podcasts with a challenge. Challenge for people leaves people and says, okay, I can do something else now. I listened, I consumed, now let me do something from what I've learned. Are there any challenges that come to mind for you for what somebody should do after listening to this episode? What is a, an action that they can take? Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's pretty simple, actually. This is uh, a challenge I give to a lot of people. And I think is, is this will change your life, okay? This will absolutely uh, change your life. And I know that is true because I can tell you about 20, 25 other lives that has changed doing exactly this, which is we place a lot of emphasis on being unique, okay? On, on finding your unique uh, place in the world. And when people think about that in terms of like entrepreneurship, they're like, yeah, I have to come up with a product that is, or a service or something that is no one has ever seen in the world before, right? Like I, um, I gotta, you know, occupy my own unique space. I think people don't put nearly enough emphasis on finding out who their hero is and actually just emulating them in every single way. And then naturally you're gonna have your own twist on it. You're not gonna be able to do things the same as them. Um, so your own twist, your own uniqueness is going to come naturally out of that. But you look at it and it's like I said, Caesar was like, Oh, Alexander the great. I'm trying to be exactly like him. I'm going to do everything the way that he did it. Uh, I'm going to copy him every single way. And no one today is like, Oh, Caesar knock off Alexander the great. Not that cool. Cause he copied someone else. Right. The same thing. Look at Kobe Bryant. This dude was just, he was ripping off Michael Jordan every single way, explicitly, openly. He's like, yeah, I study Michael Jordan and I steal his moves, okay? And now everyone's like, okay, Kobe's the top 10 greatest basketball player of all time. No one says cheap knockoff Michael Jordan, right? Who like is not that great. And so I think too many people are focused on, um, on being unique. So my challenge is this, identify your hero. Go out there and it like hurts almost because to identify your hero is to say, I am less than that person. I'm not as good as that person. So that's okay. Like it can hurt a little bit. Let it hurt. That's what it's supposed to do. But go identify your hero. Go find, go figure out who you're trying to be like. Who is Ben Wilson's hero right now? Brigham Young is my hero right now. Uh, yeah, that's it. <laughs> it's really simple. Makes sense. Yeah. Well, Ben, thank you so much for your time today. We can send people to PodRamp. We can send people to your Twitter. Is there any place you will direct people and say to check you out or to connect with you further? Uh, no, follow me at Ben Wilson Tweets. And uh, yeah, thanks so much for having me on, Danny. I appreciate it. My pleasure. And where should, what's the episode that somebody should start with you, from your perspective? Um, I would say if you uh, if you're into conquerors, start with Napoleon, and if you're into uh, inventors, start with Edison. Edison is one of my favorite podcast episodes I've listened to in a long, long time. So I will highly recommend both and put them below. Thank you so much for taking the time, Ben. I really appreciate you. And uh, until we can do it again in person, my pleasure. It's been fun.